0: Welcome. Good morning. Welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin where we are live streaming our worship service. We gather virtually in spirit every Sunday morning during this time when we cannot gather in person due to the resurgence of COVID-19 in our area. We hope that this newest surge will be short in duration so that we may be together in person again soon. We are a spiritual community dedicated to a free and responsible search for truth, meaning, and beauty. I am Lee Legault, community minister affiliated with this church, and I welcome each of you to this service. Even though we cannot gather together in person, I can still sense, with my minister spidey sense, the love generated throughout this religious community. I especially want to welcome you if you are new to the church, or if you're, on, if you're on a platform where you have the capability to do so, please feel free to say hello in the comments and let us know from where you're viewing this service. We come from a long, tra- long tradition of seeing a spark of the divine in each person. And it is in this tradition that I invite you to greet the holy among us, either in the comments or simply by sensing those heartstrings that connect us each to all. Join me as we say the words in which we light our chalice.
1: This is the flame we hold in our hearts as we strive for justice for everyone this is the light we shine on systems of oppression until they are no more. This is the warmth we share with one another as we as our struggle becomes our salvation. And our call to worship. My work is an outpouring of laughter through age-old tears. It is an uttered anyhow through grief-induced fear. Is a song of praise being sung in uncertain, unknowing lands. Is a warmth shared behind half-masked faces and gloved hands. My work is seeing you how I want to be seen. Is talking honestly and openly, but not being mean. Is trusting in those who stand to my left and my right. Is fighting with we all win not just fighting to fight. My work is your work, if you believe too, that we all work together to make everyone free, that together we can weather the struggles we face, that God loves us, even hears us whenever we pray. That was written by Reverend Jane Evans, who was a citizen chaplain resident during 2020
0: and 2021. One of the things that helps us maintain a sense of connection as a religious community, even if we cannot be together in in person, is our common purpose. For First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin, that common purpose is our mission. The congregation wrote it together. We put it on a wall in our sanctuary, and we say it together every Sunday so that we may more readily carry it with us in our hearts through the week. Let's do so now. Together, we nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice to build the beloved community. To explore more deeply the meaning of that term, beloved community, Each week, we have a moment for beloved community. This week, I'd like to share with you part of an article on implicit bias and racial discrepancies in healthcare from the American Bar Association. Black people receive less quality healthcare than white people, even when insurance status income, age, and severity of conditions are comparable. By lower quality of care, we mean the concrete, inferior care that physicians give their black patients. National Association of Medicine reported that minority persons are less likely than white persons to be given appropriate cardiac care, to receive kidney dialysis, or transplants, and to receive the best treatments for stroke, cancer, or AIDS. It concluded by describing an uncomfortable reality. Some people in the United States were more likely to die from cancer, heart disease, and diabetes simply because of their race or ethnicity, not just because they lack access to health care.
2: Good morning. A lot of things have changed in our lives in the last two years. Sometimes it seems like they just keep changing and keep changing and won't let up. In these times, it can be helpful to look for the things that aren't changing, to look for the things that we can rely on, like this church community or the way the sunlight reflects on the water or the way the tree branches look in the winter. In today's book, we're going to explore some of these things that we can count on, and then let's go and look for them in our own lives. The stars will still shine, written by Cynthia Ryland and illustrated by Tiffany Beek. This new year, the sky will still be there. The stars will still shine. Birds will fly over us. Church bells will chime. Cows will have calves. Kittens will sleep. Dogs will bark in the background. Flowers will bloom, a promise they keep. We shall have peaches. We shall have pie. We shall have ice cream three scoops high. Homes will be cozy. Homes will be warm will curl up together when rain makes a storm. And in this new year, love will be strong. Growing and growing all the days long. There will be goodness. There will be grace. There will be light in every dark place. The sky will still be there. The stars will still shine. Birds will fly over us. Church bells will chime.
1: Our meditation reading. We pause this hour to remember those whom we have lost, those whom we fear losing those to whom we would extend a helping hand, a caring heart, the will to live. We pause this hour also to hope for life and good living, for love and kind words, for reconciliation, for the support of family and friends, for meaning in our struggle, for wholeness. May our memories and hope renew us for the days and nights to come. I'm Susan Milner.
0: This is a time in our service where we center ourselves together. We breathe together. And breathing together, we sense one another's loving presence, turning virtual space into beloved religious community. Breathing in and breathing out, we follow our breath to a deeper place inside a place of greater wisdom, that place where a spark of the divine resides in each of us. Breathing together, we enter into a sacred time of silence, together. During this time, please feel free to light an actual or virtual candle, if you are so moved, representing sorrow, joy, hope, remembrance, resilience. Let us enter into that time of sacred silence together. I'm going to show you a picture from a peak moment of my chaplaincy residency. I helped bless the first box of vaccine that arrived at my hospital, Ascension Seton Medical Center of Austin, on December 21st, 2020. I felt like I was standing beside the Ark of the Covenant. We were in the middle of the winter COVID surge and I had been seeing the stress on the faces of all the people at the hospital who interact with people all day, every day. That first box of vaccine, when it arrived, it gave me a massive injection of hope. I wouldn't be one of the ones who received a dose from that first box, those went to the folks in the emergency department and the ICU, but I would get my own first dose within a month But that box, even before it was opened, it represented the best of humanity to me. A miracle. Nothing less. When it arrived, it was quite hush-hush. It was a plain brown cardboard box and a single security guard, so as not to draw attention to it, wheeled it into the bowels of the hospital, into the windowless pharmacy. Most of the pharmacists that were on duty, all of the hospital executives that were in the building, and a group of us chaplains crowded around the box. More than half of the people there, I'll never forget, started weeping as the the cardboard box was open to reveal the white Moderna box inside. We all knew that we were in the presence of the Holy we didn't have long because it needed to be kept super cold, but each of us chaplains said a few words over it. Our Catholic priest sprinkled the box with holy water and then the pharmacists put it away and we went back to the business at hand. Now, the business at hand in a hospital during a COVID surge is a little surreal. As you'll hear me say through this talk, It's it's not all bad, though. You get a chance to see the best in people in that circumstance. Visually, it looks kind of like a cross between ER and Apollo 13, I would say. I remember the staff chaplains having talks with us residents in the weeks leading up to the surge before Thanksgiving, trying to get us mentally prepared for what we would see and feel in the hospital during a surge. As that daily doubling started to occur, but I was still awfully startled the day that I walked onto the neurology floor where I worked, only to find that it had become a COVID floor overnight. The nurses that I knew so well in their scrubs were suited up like yellow astronauts going into patients' rooms. They would, they would gather around each other, helping one another gown and glove and mask up before and after each visit, and if a nurse who was in a COVID room needed something, some piece of equipment, the nurse would yell and all those in the hall would come running down and would hand him or her that piece of equipment through a little tiniest crack in the patient's door to that room. It it looked, you know, like the pictures you see on the news, but it was still jarring to me because that was my hospital floor. That wasn't some faraway place, and these weren't strangers wearing these full-body garbs. I found that the news leaves out a lot of the story, though, um, because while the medical providers and the housekeepers looked like astronauts, they are actually angel people. They are love in action. The warmth of spirit in the hospital during a COVID surge, it cut through my fear. I stopped worrying so much every day about whether my older adult dad would get COVID. I mean, I hoped he didn't, but I had a, a quiet confidence that the experience, if he did get COVID, while very serious and potentially deadly, it wouldn't be as horrifying and lonely as it had seemed when I read about it so impersonally in the news. I hope that you and your loved ones are vaccinated and boosted as the Omicron variant marches through. And I hope that the thoughts that I impart today about hospitalization during a pandemic are wholly theoretical for your lives. But it can't hurt to be prepared, and everything that I say is generally applicable to a hospital stay anyway. I will begin with the most concrete, the admonishment part of the sermon. You need to name a medical power of attorney so that the hospital knows who you want to make decisions for you at times when you can't make them for yourselves. It's a simple form. It requires two witnesses. We'll put a link to it in the chat at the end of the service. Yes, it's true that your next of kin is the default to make decisions for you if you don't have a medical power of attorney form filled out. But for reasons that I won't go into right now, best summarized as... Because Texas, um, it's a lot better to actually have a medical power of attorney form and to have it signed and make it explicit and legal. The safest place for copies of your MPOA, medical power of attorney form, is in the glove compartment or as I call it, the mortality box in your car. My dad, he was hospitalized a few months ago, and I'm his medical power of attorney. And I didn't have the form in my car, and he didn't have the form in his car when he was hospitalized. He had it in his safety deposit box. Oh, and I see that all the time at the hospital. It is so safe there and virtually irretrievable when you actually need it. So if you don't have your medical power of attorney form on you because you were so smart and you're such a careful and prudent person and you put it somewhere safe, then just swallow your pride on that and let the hospital help you fill a new form out so that you can get it on file immediately and have it where you actually need it. Some of my most stubborn patients are people who have paid to get their wills done and to get that package of forms done, and then they don't have it and they can't find it, but they don't want to do it over again because, dang it, like they paid for the package, and somewhere they have that. Don't go that route. Also, see the chaplain. I worry a lot about this with our folks. I worry that y'all will turn the chaplain away. Especially during a COVID surge, when visitors are limited, it helps to have a chaplain in your corner. Being in the hospital, it can just feel dehumanizing. And chaplains are trained to promote flourishing. And to restore dignity and humanity in that situation. We want to see pictures of your pets and your grandkids and your last trip. And we want to hear about who you are outside of the hospital. We will read to you until you fall asleep if you would like. We will find you a blanket if the room is cold. We will advocate on your behalf. We will say words like, have you thought about requesting a palliative consult? We will remind you that you are not alone and tell you things you might not otherwise know, like how that last nurse thought your jokes were really funny and how all the nurses are pulling for you to go home tomorrow will affirm and normalize your grumpiness, and we will use it as a springboard for life-giving conversation and human connection. During the winter surge, I visited all the patients I could by phone if they had COVID, um, but I definitely visited those patients whose families had called the spiritual care office and requested a chaplain visit for their loved one. And I especially visited patients who themselves picked up the phone or let their nurse know that they would like a chaplain visit. Here's a couple of thoughts about death from a pandemic chaplain. First, death is more amorphous and kind of dynamic than I had realized before I started working in the hospital. There are times when medical staff will essentially be asking you to say when your loved one is dead. For example, if a person's heart stops beating and CPR is being done, a doctor may say to the family, we've been trying to get the heartbeat back and we haven't been successful. Do you want us to continue CPR or are you ready to let him go? Very rarely, I find, does a medical provider say, your loved one died 18 minutes ago when their heart stopped beating. Can you agree with us that he's dead now? The nicest thing I can think of that you could do for your family related to your own mortality is to assure them that you trust them and that they will know what to do when the moment comes. Of course, I encourage you to have open, direct, detailed discussions with your family about what your wishes are and to create those advanced directives. But it's hard to predict every scenario. Should they try the ventilator? Should they not? Would you like to go on ECMO? Does that seem like too much? When would you want them to do some CPR and for how long? When is it time for comfort care? There's a lot of pressure on your loved ones in those moments. And I've seen how much it helps people when they have two things. One, some idea what their loved one would want. And two, a blessing from their person in advance. Kind of an assurance to your family that they can't do any wrong in your mind. And that whatever they choose will be fine with you. Another great gift to give your family is to tell them what you want done with your body after you die. And either make it simple or figure it out yourself in advance. Many people uh, want to donate their bodies to science or try some new kind of cremation or an unusual sort of burial for environmental reasons, for humanitarian reasons, and those are all great reasons. They are loving and generous and noble ideas. As long as you do the work in advance to set it up so that your family isn't left trying to fulfill that wish in the middle of the night and in the midst of acute grief. When a person dies in my hospital, I show up pretty shortly to comfort the family and to get their decision on who to call to come and pick up the body. Burial and cremation are easy choices. I have a list from a nonprofit group that has details and information about each company, and I can offer that concrete resource to the family. Then they have four to six hours after death until the house supervisor at the hospital starts getting pretty nervous if there isn't a decision yet about who to call. I feel worried for the families who are trying to carry out exotic end of life wishes when the the arrangements haven't been absolutely finalized in advance. If you wanna be cremated, Talk to your people about what you want done with your ashes. I remember when my mom died, and we stumbled that next day into the business office of the funeral home to tell them that we wanted cremation. I felt blindsided when they handed my dad a a thick catalog of containers that we could choose from. Fortunately, I had talked to my mom. We had a running sort of kind of joke that what we wanted was to get one of those big popcorn tins that divide the tin into four and we wanted to put my dad in one quadrant and my mom in one quadrant and me and my sister in the other quadrant. But so I knew that she was actually happy to have her remains divided. And now, she lives on happily in two paperweights, uh, two pendants, one of which has her ashes in one side and is waiting for my dad's ashes in the other side, and in two small urns. I also have a little bit of her ashes stashed away in my mortality box by, by the MPOAs because she always wanted to ride along. She just loved to ride along. Anyway, if you get to the funeral home and you're exhausted, and sad, and you just at that moment realize that there's a world of options out there other than like one big urn, that can be confusing, and family conflicts can ensue. FYI, maybe not surprisingly, there's no one answer about what to do with a body from a Unitarian Universalist theological perspective, so feel good about that. Topping many people's lists of fears about being hospitalized during a pandemic is the fear of being alone, whether that is due to quarantine precautions or due to restrictive hospital visitor policies. People I talk to worry most about how they or their loved one would make it through without abundant access to all the people they love the most. Our faith offers great wisdom on that. Respect for the interdependent web of existence of which we are all a part. Too often, I think, we interpret our seventh principle to mean simply that we need to take care of the earth, which we do. But it means more than that. It means that we believe that there is something bigger than all of us, however you think of that, linking us each to the other in some way. I won't just ask you to take that on faith. I will tap our fifth source, humanist teachings that counsel us to heed the guidance of reason and the results of science. Psychologist Barbara Fredrickson studies love and human connection at her lab at the University of North Carolina. And she offers a radical new perspective in her book, Love 2.0. Most people's notion of love and connection, love 1.0, is that you get these things from your partner, your family, your friends, from relationships with those close to you. And Dr. Fredrickson says, yeah, sure you do. But that's only a small part, a tiny part, really, of the love and connection that's always available to you. Studies tout the value of micro connections and moments of positive resonance that occur throughout the day and happen mostly with acquaintances and strangers. Your body and your brain thrives on these moments of positive resonance, colloquially called. Love, And it can find them from anyone, anywhere. That's love 2.0. The notion that we need our partner, our family, and our friends to feel loved and connected, it's analogous to thinking that only meat could satisfy your body's need for protein. Like, yes, it can, and perhaps that's your preferred source and what many of us think of first— But your body's going to be fine for a while without that. Hospitals are staffed with some of the most caring people on the planet. And just like you trust them to get you your medications on time, consider trusting them to offer you the opportunity for moments of positive microconnections. Dr. Fredrickson says, love 2.0 is ubiquitous. It's that moment of warmth and connection that you share with another person. Many times I have seen patients become family to their floor staff. One patient got so close to her food services rep who took her meal orders every day over the phone that she sought him out to help her pick a skilled nursing facility and for hugs when she left the hospital. Every person that walks through your hospital room door or calls into your room is another source of emotional vitamins and minerals. We are part and parcel of an interconnected web. One of my spiritual truths is that I am never alone. I feel hopeful that whatever brushes with mortality you have in a hospital will be also filled with unexpected gifts and sacred connections. Amen, and blessed be. Let there now be an offering to sustain the mission and ministries of this church during these challenging times. If you scroll up on Facebook or go to austinuu.org, you'll find a link to our Secure Contributions page. You can also mail your contributions to the church. It's 4700 Grover Avenue, Austin, Texas, 78756. We are gratefully checking the mail and making deposits each week.
1: Join me as we extinguish our chalice. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment, these we hold in our hearts until we are together again.
0: Go forth this week and look for those moments of positive micro-resonance. Look for the connection that is all around you. Practice noticing that you're not alone, even in circumstances where you might have thought that you were and be those moments of positive micro-resonance and those moments of interconnection for those around you. Go in peace.
1: This is a production
2: of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to
1: our website at austinuu.org.